be looking back at Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, but before, of course, I go there, I I do want to uh, say uh, from last week that I was totally surprised about the celebration that we had, and um, I was really blown away by all the things that everybody planned for Jane and myself, Uh, and it was a great celebration. and I'm still not getting it over it yet. And, um, and that's, that is definitely a high point. I'd like to thank everybody who planned, prayed, or did anything, was attended, gave, to make that day possible. And then to see uh, my friend Carlos, Pastor Carlos Price, actually Dr. Price, and uh, Tom Leak, Pastor Leak, come from Maryland and then from California to be here was was. Uh, it was like the icing on the cake. It was like the cherry on top of the cake. And it was, uh, it was I didn't expect it. So thank you. And don't do too many of those days. I can't take them. <laughs> I, can't, uh, I, I can't take, uh, I know that everybody who planned and stuff like that, you are probably still exhausted too. But um, it, was, it was just a grand time. And I think it was good for everybody uh, because the, really the day was about faithfulness. And I couldn't have been faithful if God wasn't faithful to me. He's the one who kept me, right? And God keeps us faithful. That's the point. He keeps us faithful. You know? I mean, believe me, if living the Christian life can be done in the flesh, no one could do it. We'd all quit. Because we, we can't handle what's going on. But God, with his spirit in us, the word of God strengthening us, we can see what other people can't see because God's allowing us to see through his eyes. And then we have a hope that no one else has that keeps us going. It's set before us. And so with those encouragements that we have on a regular basis as we give ourselves to the means of grace, the preaching of God's word, the reading of God's word, the meditating upon God's word, the praying, the fellowship, we, fellowshipping with one another, uh, the partaking of the Lord's table, all those things are very important for, for you and I to be strengthened on a regular basis to make it to the end, to make it to the goal line. Uh, to close our eyes someday in death, knowing with confidence where we're going, with no doubts in your mind. That's an amazing thing. Especially if you were brought up with, if somebody asked you when you die where you're going, the answer was, I hope I'm going to heaven. No, that's not the answer for the believer. The answer for the believer, I know where I'm going. I know where it's ending And I know who's bringing me there. See, that's hope. And that's what people need in the world. No no matter where you go, people need that hope. And the only one they're going to get it from is Christ, right? So the day was about faithfulness. But it's the faithfulness of God that continues to uphold us. I'd like to thank everybody uh, for those who attended and participated in any way. It was a truly a scrapbook event. And uh, I... um, I thank the Lord for it. I, I for personally think myself I don't deserve anything like that, but um, I thank, uh, thank the Lord I was part of it. So, um, but, of course, coming to a place like that, now we have a lot of work to do, don't we? We've got to keep going, and uh, we have to keep marching forward and doing God's work. All right, that brings me to uh, the book of Hebrews. Take your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a, a Bible provided in the pew. You may want to find your place in the, Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to look today about, remember I got done with a a 
tremendous warning in Hebrews. Uh, and But remember, these are homilies. These are messages preached by a pastor. We can see the pastoral heart coming out in this passage of Scripture because now he switches to a message of hope. It's totally a hope-filled thing he's doing here in this passage of Scripture. Now, we have been dealing with a very serious problem that existed in this church community. And, of course, that problem does exist today in our world, in the evangelical church, the worldwide church, even who are, is, is called, calling themselves Christian. And it's the problem of remaining a perpetual, in, the, in the perpetual state of infancy, not growing spiritually. His recipients that he's addressing, uh, in some respects, are spiritual babies. He is saying to them, listen, move ahead. Come closer to the things of God. You started off being zealous for the things of God, but you have become sluggish and dull of hearing. That's not good. And so the context, though, is still pointing to Jesus as the great high priest, similar to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And he's, he wants to explain that to the people because that's going to be very important to establish them in, in spiritual maturity. He wants to tell them more about the son's typological relationship with Melchizedek, this priest king of the Old Testament, this, this elusive character in the Old Testament that's going to be explained in chapter 7 of Hebrews, so I'm not there yet. And he realizes he can't do it because the people are not mature enough to take that kind of theology. And he thinks they ought to get it because they need it. So I ended last time with a warning passage, and that was to make a profession of Christianity and yet have an unfruitful field which produces nothing but briars and thorns, is a very dangerous place to be. If someone says they're a believer and there is no fruit in their field, saying they are that tree that's planted there, there's a contradiction in terms as to who they profess to be and what's growing in the field, then that's dangerous and he's warning them So we're confronted with someone or some who have made a profession of faith and formally had visible signs and marks of being a truly committed Christian, but by their refusal to grow and continue in the faith, they now give fruit that they were not generally born again by God's Spirit at all. They may have convinced others that they were believers at one time they may even persuaded themselves that they belonged to christ but their so-called conversion profession proved to be counterfeit proved, proved to be spurious and when tested for their faith and most likely that was by persecution They didn't want to hold. They didn't want to stick. They didn't want to stay. They became rebels to the way and the work of God, and God calls them apostates, people who profess, and yet they now reject the very basic tenets of the gospel. And therefore, if you 
reject that, there's no other message to preach. And so that seems like a bleak place to end. And, but it's the warning we all need to take, examine ourselves, to whether we're in the faith. So you see that the issue is, if the seed of God is in you, you will produce fruit. If God's seed is in you, you will produce fruit. Yes, in different measures, but nonetheless, you will be different and produce fruit of righteousness. You will produce fruit of the Spirit. Why? Well, if God's seed is in you, it is the work of God that makes a person holy in their mind, holy in their will, holy in their conduct. It is God himself that gives you a desire to want the word of God. God is, and we should be, concerned about our own spiritual growth and maturity, right? We would be concerned if our child never grew. It's 15 years later and they're still an infant. That would be problematic. Something's wrong, right? You'd be going to every doctor that you can possibly go to to get help. Something's wrong. It's the same spiritually. God's doing a work on you. The seed of God is in you. You will grow. You know what? That, you, you even grow when you don't want to grow in some respects. So we should be asking ourselves, what fruits have we produced? What have you produced since you have become a believer? Where is your work of faith? Where is your labor of love? We all have to ask ourselves those questions. But you see, some of the problem is that we have in this area thought that we need some kind of great work or great fruit that everyone notices and acknowledges to be considered significant to God. And that's not the truth at all. God's going to take you from someone who lies to someone who tells the truth. That's significant. He's going to take you from someone who's prejudiced and hates people to someone who actually loves people, even people you hated the most before. He's going to change everything about you. And that's fruit that God's doing in your life. See, that's what God does when he converts people. You don't remain the same. You're different. So here in our passage this morning, there is a transition in the message and a pastoral desire in the message that after this strong warning, here's this strong encouragement to the true believers. He wants to give the encouragement so, so his listeners press on to spiritual maturity and lay hold to the very truths that will make their faith strong. That's what he's doing. He's, he's now pressing them with encouragement. So, how does he start off? He really, I see the Lord really working in this passage of Scripture as God being really the, the focal point here. Because he says, first of all, simply this, Listen, God sees you. He sees you. The pastor is convinced that this warning does not apply to his true 
converts. Look at verse number 9 of Hebrews chapter 6. It says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So what is he doing here? He uses the word beloved. That word right there means that the one writing and communicating to his audience has fond affection for those he's addressing. And so he brings them to a mood of hope. And in fact, the term beloved is never used to address unsaved or apostates. It's only used to address believers, true believers. So he is fully confident, according to the word here, that they belong to Christ. They're in Christ's house. They are partaker of Christ's blessings. Isn't that a good encouragement to have as you go along in the Christian walk? To know that you're part of God's, God's work, what he's doing. And what led him to this confidence is that he observed that they possessed something better than those who were making professions but had no fruit in their field. A faith that was living and working in their life. He observed the outward and even some of the inward evidences that accompany salvation. That's what he is saying here. Listen, I'm speaking to you and right at you and saying, listen, I see things in your life that accompany salvation. In other words, when people get saved, certain things should accompany their profession, right? What is it? Fruit. But of course, we may say this. I don't know if I see any fruit in my life. But he's saying this, I see fruit. Sometimes you have to have other people tell you you, they see your fruit, that you've grown. Wow. From the first I met you and what was going on in your life, I see God working. I see God's hand in your, in, your, in your life. But sometimes, you know, we're not always satisfied that someone else tells us that they see God's hand in our life and the fruit in our life. And he says this, if you notice in verse number 10 of this passage of Scripture, chapter 6, he says, For God is not unjust so as... Forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. You know what he says to them? Here's the incredible thing that comes when it comes to our fruit and our service. It is God himself who is taking notes. God sees you. For God is not unjust so as to forget. What is it that God does not forget? Well, he lists about three things there. Number one, it says in verse number 10, your work and labor of love. Your work and labor of love. Every little thing you do as a believer, and people say, well, what are fruits and what are are the works believers have? Everything. Everything. After conversion, everything you do is somehow connected to fruit and work. Like works that God has ordained for you. He sees 
Actually, the word work is, is, is a word for being exhausted in the work. He sees your exhausting, hard, ongoing work in the Lord's service. He sees the nursery workers toiling down there. He sees the Sunday school teachers studying to teach the students, the kitchen workers preparing the food, the deacons doing ministry and mercy ministry to the people, the elders doing the task that God's given them, the ushers, those who do counseling, those who order books for our book booth, those who plan and pray, those who do mall and beach and work and barbershop and family evangelism. God sees it all. He sees the praise team workers. He sees those who prepare to read the scripture. He sees the sound booth personnel. Those who pick people up for church. Those who maintain the website. Prepare and update the church directory. Maintain the grounds and those who manage the office and count the money and do the bookkeeping and write the checks. And those who do home groups. And lead home groups, host home groups, and lead home groups. Those who give sacrificially, who pray faithfully, who tend irregularly. Those who are always willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done with joy and cheerfulness. See, God sees it all, and he doesn't forget a thing. He's not unjust to see when no one else sees your work. Isn't that encouraging? Of course, it also is a little frightening. Because that means there must be motive connected to what I do, right? These people have the right motive. Look at verse number 10. I not only see your work, and don't forget it, and your labor of love, but I says the love which you have shown his name. Here's the motive. I'm doing it for the Lord. If no one else sees, God sees, and I'm doing it for Him. Why? Because I understand my redemption. I understand the position I was in before I came to Christ under God's wrath heading to hell. And now His mercy came, and now God's done this wonderful thing. He's producing fruit in my life. And what are the results? My motive is I want to serve the Lord because He sees everything. Wherever I go, God sees that's where I live, right? Well, that's going to put you in a place where you show love to others for the sake of God's name. You serve in the ministry God's given you for the sake of God's name. You work within your family for the sake of God's name. Because everything is at stake there. They're also, of course, prompted by love for God himself. Why do you do this? Because I love God. The name of God is the only purpose for serving. Now, there's a certain level of maturity when someone comes to that place, right? You're not looking for accolades. You're not looking for pats on the back. Now, it's nice to get those things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things. But, but now, what the point is, if no one sees, God sees. And God sees exactly what you're doing. 
He sees the very motive why you're doing it. So if you're doing it for yourself, if you're doing it so other people see, like he says in Matthew, well, then you have your reward already. That's all you're getting. And that's not a good way to serve, right? Serve because God sees. Because he does. He does see. And then in verse number 10, he goes on, he says, listen, I see your past and present and continual service helping the saints. I, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. See, he, in serving others, we in turn are serving Christ himself. And it is included here that their coming to the assistance of their brethren is evidence of their willingness to identify themselves with a stigma attached to the name of Jesus Christ. These are Jews coming to know Jesus and are willing to help the brethren who are in persecution and not caring about that, not caring what people are saying, that shows the genuineness of their love to Christ because they're not being moved out of the way by what other people are saying. Notice it says they're present service they're still still ministering to the saints they're just ministering and notice that the focus is focus here is the ministering to the saints to the body to the people who are believers we need help sometimes because we need to be rescued from things uh as we go along and so therefore we're ministering to one another by using our gifts by using the fruit in your life ministers to me This is not a message that has not been taught even by the Lord himself from a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 25. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I just want to just remind you what it says there when the Lord says in Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then it says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, in verse 17, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink. And verse 38, it says, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, the king will say, answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So ministering to the saints in the body is ministering to Christ himself. That's encouraging. Right? Because there's there's no rank of what you're supposed to do. Just live your Christian life and do what God wants you to do in the very simple things of life. And you will be not only doing the ordained works God's given you, but you will be bearing fruit and building up the body. So these works of love are among the most satisfactory evidence 
of being a child of God, even though at times we're weak and wayward and we drop the ball. God does not forget service done to Himself and to the saints. He sees it all. He sees the motive in which you're doing it. And He appreciates both the deed done and the difficulty involved in doing it. The struggle you have in doing something. God sees. Now, what is the purpose of Him encouraging them in this way verse number 11 because he has a desire for them as a pastor but notice what he says in verse 11 and we desire who's the we i think the we is god and him this is god's plan for you i'm just recognizing it and we desire that each one of you verse 11 show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end Listen, keep doing what you're doing. Show that same diligence. Demonstrate that same diligence as you go along in your Christian walk. Why? Because in doing so, you get strengthened in your faith. Your hope gets stronger, and it finally will lead you to the end of the path, the end of the way. So you are on the path that leads to the consummation of your salvation. Don't wander off. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep showing godly diligence in the hope that God will keep His promises and preserve you and that you will persevere until that final day. That you'll, what He already said in Hebrews, that you will have God's blessing in your life that you will have entering into rest as confidence and your possession, that you will have final and uh, salvation from sin and death, that you will see that someday, and that ultimately life in the city of God, in the heavenly Jerusalem, will be yours. And then what's the goal for them? They begin to realize that in verse number 12, the goal is... This, that they would no longer be lazy learners, but actually imitators of faithful men and women who were proved by God in Scripture, where it says in verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look in Scripture and see the ones that have gone before you and have believed the promises, held to the promises, and obtain the promises. And so he's, he's pushing them because that's the goal. Not to be lazy anymore. Not to be dull of hearing. But what? To imitate those who are mature. Someday you're going to grow to imitate maturity. Someday you are going to be the mature. Right? So you got to, in a sense, be ready that imitation meant not only listening to what is said, but also following the pattern of that person's life. That's part of it. Those worthy of mimicking, if you notice in verse 12, are marked by two things, faith and patience. Or faithful perseverance. These people persist and await the outcome of God's promise 
It is those who believe the word of God and persevere in hope that have full assurance of hope until the end. It's those who just keep going. See, so you're called and encouraged to listen. God, because God sees, sees and God knows what's going on in your life to just keep going because God's held promises in front of you. And you're to hold to those promises just like the patriarchs held to those promises and they obtained the promises first by faith and then by actual sight, right? So that's what we're supposed to do. So God sees the second thing in our passage is that God promises. Our, the question, what is, what is the promise? Well, why should you have such assurance of hope Well, because God promises security. That's what he promises to you and I. Abraham is our example of perseverance concerning God's promises. Even though God gave Abraham many promises, there is only one promise that God actually gave with an oath. Stick your Bibles very quickly and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Just a couple verses, verse 16 through 18, three verses. Uh, and I want you to notice that this is where he's drawing from. He's, he's drawing from the example of Abraham, and he is simply saying this to Abraham. Remember, laying it out before Abraham, and he says in verse, chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 16, and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, and verse 17 Here is the promise, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed and the stars of the heavens as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies in verse 18 and in your seed all the nations of the earth because you have obeyed my voice. There's the promise that he laid out to Abraham and brethren, that promise is still open to us today. That we're part of the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would multiply his seed because we are part of, because we come to Christ, that promise of so many descendants that you, it's like trying to count the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. You can't do it. There's going to be so many that come to Christ over the ages. And yet at the same time, If you look back at Hebrews chapter 6, this is what he's saying. He says in verse number 13, And when God made the promise to Abraham, he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So Abraham, about 75 years old, certainly had to exercise patience before receiving the promise that was still 25 years ahead of him. Imagine God promising you something, and then you don't see really the promise come true until 25 years later. That's a long time. So you have to have perseverance. You have to have trust in the person who's making the promise, right? That's what you have to trust. 
It's like you go to a doctor or you go to somebody and say, you know what, I've been, I've been real sick. I've been real sick. And the person says to you, well, you'll get well. Well, are you going to have a whole lot of confidence in somebody who's not a doctor who says to you, you're going to get well? But then you go to a doctor and you tell the doctor your symptoms. He examines you. He does all the tests and he comes back to you and he says, let me tell you something. You're not going to die. You're going you're gonna to get well. Well, isn't that a message of hope? But you're trusting in the character and the knowledge of the doctor who has something to say to give you hope. Well, in our passage of Scripture, we see that it is God himself that stands up and swears by himself. Right? So Abraham never wavered from hope and trust in the promise of God, even though it was way off. So Abraham is our example to follow an undoubting and a persevering faith which warrants our expectation of future blessing. What did he do, actually? He believed the declaration of... uh, that was promised, that the promise contained. He believed it, that he was going to have a son, right? And that he was going to have many uh, heirs from that son. He expected the blessing it referred to in the promise. And also he patiently persevered in believing and expecting the promise to its fulfillment. Did he finally have a son named Isaac? Yes, he did. Of course, he did some other things in between, had Ishmael, but that wasn't the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. And he did it without wavering in the middle of trials. You can see the struggle Abraham goes through in the Old Testament. And so here it's laid out before us. Listen, mature to the place that you can imitate guys like Abraham. And how did he do it? God said something, and he believed it because... It was based on the character of God, even though all the implications of the promise did not happen. He obtained it by faith, all right? He didn't see all, he didn't see you guys come to know Christ as his Savior, uh, as your Savior. He didn't, he didn't see you, but he saw you by faith. He believed God by faith. So God makes, makes a promise, but what's interesting about this passage of Scripture is God doesn't just make a promise here. Wouldn't you think that if God made a promise, that's good enough? It would seem like that would be the case. But there was a thing going on in the Old Testament. And it was this, that, listen, if somehow the promise was in doubt in some way, or someone is questioning it, then you add to the promise an oath. And an oath would be the end of the story. Because the oath would bring in witnesses. Someone have to, would have to give an oath of, to someone greater than themselves. And that oath would confirm or back up or bolster that promise where there would be no doubt and nothing would be in question anymore. It would be the end of the matter. That's what the case was. In fact, there's an example in the Old Testament I want to go to first before I look at this next section of Scripture. In this Exodus chapter 22... Verse 10 and 11. And you can see it's, it's kind of self-explanatory here in this passage of Scripture that 
There is a neighbor here entrusted with the care of an animal by its owner. The animal is injured or stolen while no one's looking. The neighbor is therefore unable to prove that he is not at fault because there is no third party who can testify to what happened. In such an event, what do you do? Look at it says in verse number 10. If any man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, verse 11, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them, that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and shall not make he shall not make restitution. So what's the point here? The point is, listen, wow, this happened, but how am I going to prove it? Well, people made oaths back then, and they usually made an oath to someone greater than themselves so the person can keep them accountable to their promise and their oath. In this case, when an oath was made by the, both parties, the matter was over. The man did not have to make restitution because people actually believed other people's words. Words meant something. They, they pulled a lot of weight. So this oath was, was a, really a, a, something that really proved somebody was telling the truth. Now, Looking at that, go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and notice in verse number 16 where it says this, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So the Lord says, listen, I've given a promise that I'll bless Abraham. And of course that promise led to us that in Christ Jesus, that when we believe in him, we're part of the blessing that comes from Abraham. We're part of what he promised there. And now here, God says, listen, but I'm going to back that up with an oath. And so, when I do, it'll be the end of the matter. See, making promises today seems not to have the same weight as it once did. But usually, when a promise is made, a promise is only as good as the character and the integrity of the person who makes it. In very serious matters, people are asked to confirm their promise with an oath, right? Now, that's not even uncommon in our own, our own society. You go into an American court of law, a person is about to testify, right? And they are requested to place their left hand on the Bible lift up the right hand, and to swear to tell what? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's a pretty serious matter. I don't know if you've ever been in that place when that happened. You see, you, you see sometimes people hesitate to do that. Now, for they may do it for other reasons today, but at one time they hesitated because, wait a minute, if I'm making this oath before God, who's greater than me, and knows everything, or people have a sense that God does see and know everything, so therefore I'm going to be, I better tell the truth. That's the point, see? In this procedure, a person was swearing by an authority higher than himself. The highest authority is God. The person was guaranteeing the truthfulness of his testimony and invoking God to be the witness of that testimony. So 
it says in this passage that God swore by the greatest authority in the universe. Who's greater than God? No one. So God has to swear by who? Himself. Putting his own integrity, reputation, and honor on the line to guarantee the fulfillment of what was promised. The fact that God swore by himself indicates that he binds himself to his word by his eternal person. Now, did God need to take an oath? No. Was God's word good enough? Yes. But God made an oath to prove without a doubt that his will and his counsel to make good on his promise made not only to Abraham, but to his heirs is unchangeable. The nature of God is unchangeable when he makes a promise. Now, what he's getting at is this, that your salvation is secure. When you come to Christ and you believe by faith, it's secure. Why? God had made a promise. Right? Now, can God go back on his promise? No. He can't go back on his promise for several reasons. But look at verse number Look, look at verse number 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie And then he says this, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. In other words, listen, God's made this promise. The promise is really connected to Jesus Christ and what he has done as the high priest. And so therefore, God can't lie and what he had promised can't change. So his very promise and word and the very nature of his character cannot change or manipulate or do anything to that promise. It must take place. Now, he's doing that because he's saying to those, listen, look what it says in in verse number 18. You who have taken refuge. Brethren, who's that? The, the, The picture here to take refuge should should direct your mind to the Old Testament when someone, remember, accidentally killed someone. Not not murder, but they accidentally killed someone. God set up in the Old Testament cities of refuge. When that person killed somebody by accident, they would have to get to that city as fast as they could. Why? Because the avenger was going to be after them to take their life or get a hold of them, so they were able to flee from the avenger to the asylum cities of refuge. Brethren, who's our refuge? Is it in Christ? He's saying here to those who run to Christ for refuge, God made this promise in Christ Jesus that, listen, you... When you come, you will be saved and kept secure. So he gave a promise. He confirmed that promise with an oath. Now, why? Well, actually, an oath added in addition to the word of promise is a confirmation. It's, it's, le- it's a legal guarantee. Now, why does God, who cannot lie, add an oath? Well, 
to remove any and all doubt and argument from your mind that God is going to renege on his promise. He will not do so. He cannot do so. Why? Because of his unchangeable, verse number 17, purpose. Actually, the word unchangeable is one of the strongest words used in the New Testament, and it tends to press upon us the thought, unable to be removed. The word belongs to the legal term, terminology of the time and signifies a ruling or a contract which, which was incapable of being set aside or annulled. He indicates the irrevocability of God's purpose as expressed in his promise and confirmed by his oath. Now, that becomes something very encouraging to us because he's building a case for you and I, and part of the case is this. All this has to do with Jesus Christ, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And you know what? The people weren't getting, they weren't making that connection. And sometimes we don't make that connection because it was not just the promise to Abraham. The promise of Abraham could not be fulfilled if Christ didn't come. It couldn't have taken place. So, of course, the blessing comes true in Jesus Christ, our great and perfect high priest. But the promise to Abraham is secured by God's oath. There is a question, what is it which God has confirmed by an oath to the heirs of promise? Well, I see in the context that the oath is surely connected to the oath also mentioned in Psalm 110. Remember, we started out the section in Psalm 110, but we have to go back to Psalm 110. You don't have to go there right now, but I'll just read you the passage. Just one passage he's referring to here, and it's this. What was the oath that God makes? Well, here's the oath in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Sounds like Hebrews, doesn't it? And this is what he says. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There is the ultimate oath. Why? Because the priest was very significant in the life of Israel. In fact, remember that one event that took place every year, the Day of Atonement, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies with the sacrifices and the blood for, uh, and poured it on the mercy seat. The priest was the only, high priest was the only one allowed in there. And remember, his garments also were designed with bells and pomegranates on the bottom of it. And part of the reason why it had bells on it, because as long as the people heard the high priest moving around in there and heard the bells, they knew that the sacrifices and what the high priest was doing in there was being accepted by God. If the bells stopped, you know what that means? He's dead. How are we going to get him out of there? But you know what? There's an, I don't know of any place in Scripture where God killed the high priest in the Holy of Holies. God always accepted the sacrifice when it was done correctly. Usually, it w- either it was done correctly or it was not done at all. So, you're seeing here that Jesus Christ, of course, they had to do that year in and year out, right? Year in and year out. So the people's sins can be forgiven and they can be made right with God. Jesus Christ now 
Why is being a high priest so significant? He does it once for all. He does it forever. He does it one time. Right? And not only that, he goes into the presence of God and stays in the presence of God. And he goes there, not alone, but in our behalf. In the behalf of all those who believe. And God confirmed his promise to Abraham with the oath that Jesus Christ will be the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to jump ahead real quick. Take your Bibles, look at chapter 7. I'm not going to elaborate on it. I just want you to see where he elaborates on this particular thing here, because that's not what people always say. I would say this, that, listen, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Kizedek lies at the foundation of the human hope in this passage of Scripture. This is the only hope. This is our hope. Verse number 20 of chapter 7, it says, Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, verse 21, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Look at verse 22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, But the word of oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Do you see that this promise is signed and sealed by the oath that Jesus would be our forever high priest in heaven? You know what that does? That totally secures your salvation. He's encouraging him in this way. You don't have to doubt whether you're saved or not. Because you are. If you come to Christ, your high priest, you're saved. So you may be asking this question. I did. Maybe you didn't or didn't. I don't know. Did or didn't. Is What are the two unchangeable things in verse number 18? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, what are they? Well, the first one is the promise to Abraham. But the second one is the declaration of Psalm 110 that Jesus Christ is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the second. Can anybody change that? No. Can anybody reverse that? No. Can anybody undo the work that Christ has done once and forever? No. Can anybody pull Christ back from heaven and stop him from interceding for the saints? No. Can anybody rob you of your salvation when you're in Christ and he's your high priest? Absolutely no. 
You realize that? That's what he's getting at. The hope of eternal life through the priesthood of Jesus Christ is sure and steadfast. It is being with him where he is, sharing his glory, all our hope Rest on Christ. It's like what Jesus Christ said in John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go and prepare a place for you, right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. He's saying essentially the same thing. That our just and faithful God will not lie to us. He will not renege on his promise to us nor will he bar anyone who takes refuge in him from at any time. The faithfulness of God secures both your perseverance in the faith, obedience of the truth, and your ultimate and complete salvation forever. When God saves... He saves completely. He brings you where you cannot go on your own. He does what you cannot do or could have never done if you had a million years to figure it out. And if some are still wavering and doubting, well, this is a good pastor. Look what he says in verse number 19. I'm going to give you God's work accomplished, your sure pledge, And he says this, look at verse number 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Man, this is what he does here. He's building up all these words to say this. Listen, your salvation in Christ is secure. That's your hope. In fact, he tells us from the, the, the Greek world, world there at that time, the anchor was a, a picture of hope. But the anchor is also a picture for us that secures a ship from drifting. And then he says this, listen, you are, it's a hope that is sure, it's safe, it's firm, it's steadfast, that means it's strong, and also it's, it, it includes one who enters into the veil. What is that? That's the Holy of Holies, right? The veil that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The high priest was allowed to go in. Jesus goes in, rips the veil down. And now what does he do? What does Jesus do? Jesus has opened up a way for all who desire to take refuge in him to come. Come and I will save you. The door to the presence of God has been blown wide open. We don't need priests. We don't need anybody to come to except Jesus Christ. If we come in faith and repentance to our high priest He will save you and He will secure your salvation. Why? Because it says here that He is the forerunner. You know what a forerunner is? It's one who runs before the crowd. In other words, it was a word used especially of the men or troops which were sent into battle He would go and explore. They would go and explore before the advancing troops would come in. And they would secure the area, whatever 
whatever they needed to do so the troops can come in safely. What does Jesus do? He goes in and he becomes our forerunner, blazes his way into, past the veil, into the presence of God, and he secures a place for us. And what does he do, do there? As the scripture is going to tell us, he makes intercession for what? The saints, right? He prays on our behalf. He keeps our place secure forever and ever and ever. So here is a message of hope. And here, if I can say this message in one sentence, it would be this. That through Jesus Christ, our high priest, a believer's hope is safe and securely anchored in heaven, and no one could alter that because it's based on God's promise, his oath, and his character. So, does that not encourage you this morning to go out? Because when I understand that, you know what I could do? This is what I could do. Once you have this settled confidence, not arrogance, confidence. I have confidence, not in me, not in you, even though I do have it in you to a certain point, but in God. That when I came to Christ, he saved me. And now I can acquire spiritual maturity because my salvation rests and I can go forward. Now I'm freed from doubts. Now I am freed from uncertainties and I can go on in my Christian life. You can go on in your Christian life confident in your salvation and you could do it, as he says in the passage, right until the end. You'll persevere right to the end. And you'll go to heaven. And you'll obtain all the fullness of the promise of God, first by faith, then by sight. Amen? See, so just as Abraham believed God, and then 25 years later, the promise came through Isaac, and yet the fullness of the promise is yet to be seen. We believe that Jesus Christ will save us to the uttermost, right? Complete and total salvation. And yet we are not dead yet. We're not in heaven yet, but we know we're heading there, right? Isn't that what it's about? If, I, if I'm there, I can live my life with, with, with boldness and confidence that I am saved because God saved me. And although life storms beat against us and Satan tries to hinder us and the world is totally against what God is doing in the world, they can never destroy your position before God in heaven. Because your soul and my soul is securely anchored in God's inner sanctuary, the safest location in the universe. So God sees everything you're doing. He's going to cause you to bear fruit. God promises and lays it before you. He's saying, here it is. Here's my character. I can't lie. Believe my promises. God takes his promises and he bolsters it with an oath. It should be the end of the matter at that point. And then God lays before you the ultimate end of that oath, that Jesus Christ, his work is accomplished. And that's the highest pledge and hope that we can ever have we can go on and live our christian lives with boldness and gusto 
with effectiveness right to the end, right till the day we close our eyes. And it's all based on the Lord. Amen? I think I, I was really struggling with this passage because I was going to do it in little bits and pieces, but if you do it in little bits and pieces, you lose the whole point. So I, had, I took it as a sandwich and gave you the whole thing. So I just pray you would take it and use it. Because believe me, you know how many people I talk to that are not sure about their salvation? You can't go any further if you're not. Now, if you're totally not sure about your salvation, then speak to someone so we can give you the gospel. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, he's the only way. There's no other way you need to come to him. He's the one you seek refuge in. He's the one who's gone into heaven on behalf of those who would believe. He's the only one who could make your future safe and secure. So come to him. Talk to me. Talk to someone in the church. But don't put it off any longer. Don't put it off any longer. Come. And to those who are spiritual babies, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. Let me just end with this. You know, Bob Glenn was preaching last week. Some of you didn't know that Bob Glenn was with us for about eight and a half years. But um, one thing about Bob is that, you know, he told a story about me being in a tie and neck neck, uh, thing. And that actually was a true story. But he doesn't tell you the story about him. That that same day, he walks to my door, his hair, he didn't take a shower, his hair stands straight up. He's got cut off gray sweatpants with holes all in it. Now, he's coming to church to do his work. He's got sneakers that have holes all in it. His T-shirt is, like, cut off, like, this way. And he comes in, and he's telling me about my neck brace, you know, and my, my, my tie, and, you know, he always rubbed that in. But he came into my office one day, and he said to me, uh, you know, and Bob at that point was very zealous, very exciting, uh, but he wasn't really grown spiritually. And he said to me one day, you know, he came to me bad-mouthing this one theologian. And so he went on, and while I sat there looking at him, I had my neck brace on, and I says, Bob, have you ever read anything the guy wrote? And he said, no. I said, well, how can you say anything about him? I says, here, read this. This is a book written by this particular guy. He comes back a day later, and he holds up in a book, and he says, this is awesome. And that... I fed him that book, then I fed him another theological book, and then that was it. He just took off. He just took off. He got it. He got it. And he now, of course, he's pastoring, and he's gonna, the Lord's going to use him. The Lord still has work to do on him as well as us, but he's going to use him. And uh, he went from just spiritual infancy to progressing in maturity just by what? Theology reading God's word, uh, ministering to God's people. That's what makes you grow. If you're going to stay at home and listen to TV preachers, you'll never grow. Matter of fact, there's not much they say. <clears throat> they can't say much. You've got to get in the word, right? You've got to get in the word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your people. Continue to grow them, Lord. Continue to bolster their faith. Continue to do in them a work that you promised you said you would do by your Spirit. Lord, give them victory over their sin. 
Give them victory, Lord, over the, the things that have held them down in the past. And Lord, allow them to stick their head above the clouds and see what Christ has done for them. And then, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes that they may relish in the things that you have accomplished on their behalf and that they would continue to grow in maturity and in faith so they can be used more by you in this world, so they can be more confident in your promises and in their own salvation. So they, Lord, when they sing, can give glory to your great name because they understand what they're singing. They understand the implications. They understand where you rescued them from. They understand you are their refuge. Oh, Lord, let us sing with those things in mind and press us on, Lord, to grow in Christ-likeness. We'll give you the glory because all the glory belongs to you and only you, Lord. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.